Section 12 of A Preface to Politics by Walter Lippmann. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Continuation of Chapter 9 The politics I have urged in these chapters cannot be learned by rote. What can be taught by rule of thumb is the administration of precedents. That is at once the easiest and the most fruitless form of public activity. Only a low degree of intelligence is required, and of effort merely a persistent repetition. Men fall into a routine when they are tired and slack. It has all the appearance of activity, with few of its burdens. It was a profound observation when Bernard Shaw said that men dread liberty because of the bewildering responsibility it imposes and the uncommon alertness it demands. To do what has always been done, to think in well-cut channels, to give up the intolerable disease of thought, is an almost constant demand of our natures. That is perhaps why so many of the romantic rebels of the nineteenth century sank at last into the comforting arms of Mother Church. That is perhaps the reason why most oldish men acquire information, but learn very little. The conservative who loves his routine is, in nine cases out of ten, a creature too lazy to change its habits. Confronted with a novelty, the first impulse is to snub it and send it into exile. When it becomes too persistent to be ignored, a taboo is erected and threats of fines and condign punishment are made if it doesn't cease to appear. This is the level of culture at which Sherman Antitrust Acts are passed, brothels are raided, and labor agitators are thrown into jail. If the taboo is effective, it drives the evil under cover, where it festers and emits a slow poison. This is the price we pay for the appearance of suppression. But if the problem is more heavily charged with power, the taboo irritates the force until it explodes. Not infrequently what was once simply a factor of life becomes the dominating part of it. At this point the whole routineer scheme of things collapses. There is a period of convulsion and caesarean births and men weary of excitement sink back into a newer routine. Thus the cycle of futility is completed. The process bears as much resemblance to statecraft as sitting backward on a runaway horse does to horsemanship. The ordinary politician has no real control, no direction, no insight into the power he rides. What he has is an elevated, though temporary, seat. Real statesmanship has a different ambition. It begins by accepting human nature. No routine has ever done that, in spite of the conservative patter about human nature. Mechanical politics has usually begun by ignoring, and ended by violating, the nature of men. To accept that nature does not mean that we accept its present character. It is probably true that the impulses of men have changed very little within recorded history, 
What has changed enormously from epoch to epoch is the character in which these impulses appear. The impulses that at one period work themselves out into cruelty and lust may at another produce the richest values of civilized life. The statesman can affect that choice. His business is to provide fine opportunities for the expression of human impulses, to surround childhood, youth, and age with homes and schools, cities and countryside that shall be stocked with interest and the chance for generous activity. Government can play a leading part in this work, for with the decadence of the Church it has become the only truly Catholic organization in the land. Its task is essentially to carry out programs of service, to add and build and increase the facilities of life. Repression is an insignificant part of its work. The use of the club can never be applauded, though it may be tolerated faute de mieux. Its use is a confession of ignorance. A sensitively representative machinery will probably serve such statesmanship best, for the easy expression of public opinion in government is a clue to what services are needed and a test of their success. It keeps the processes of politics well ventilated and reminds politicians of their excuse for existence. In that kind of statesmanship there will be a premium on inventiveness, on the ingenuity to devise and plan. There will be much less use for lawyers, and a great deal more for scientists. The work requires industrial organizers, engineers, architects, educators, sanitists, to achieve what leadership brings into the program of politics. This leadership is the distinctive fact about politics. The statesman acts in part as an intermediary between the experts and his constituency. He makes social movements conscious of themselves, expresses their needs, gathers their power, and then thrusts them behind the inventor and the technician in the task of actual achievement. What Roosevelt did in the conservation movement was typical of the statesman's work. He recognized the need of attention to natural resources, made it public, crystallized its force, and delegated the technical accomplishment to Pinchot and his subordinates. But creative statesmanship requires a culture to support it. It can neither be taught by rule nor produced out of a vacuum. A community that clatters along with its rusty habits of thought unquestioned, making no distinction between instruments and idols, with a dull consumption of machine-made romantic fiction, no criticism, an empty pulpit and an unreliable press, will find itself faithfully mirrored in public affairs. The one thing that no Democrat may assume is that the people are dear good souls, fully competent for their task. The most valuable leaders never assume that. No one, for example, would accuse Karl Marx of disloyalty to working men. Yet in 1850 he could write at the demagogues among his friends, quote, while we draw the attention of the German workmen to the undeveloped state of the proletariat in Germany, you flatter the national spirit 
and the guild prejudices of the German artisans in the grossest manner, a method of procedure without doubt the more popular of the two. Just as the Democrats made a sort of fetish of the words the people, so you make one of the word proletariat." Unquote. John Spargo quotes this statement in his Life. Marx, we are told, could use phrases like democratic miasma. He never seems to have made the mistake of confusing democracy with demolatry. Spargo is perfectly clear about this characteristic of Marx. Quote, he admired most of all, perhaps, that fine devotion to truth as he understood it, and disregard of popularity which marked Owen's life contempt for popular opinion was one of his most strongly developed characteristics. He was fond, says Leibnacht, of quoting as his motto the defiant line of Dante, with which he afterwards concluded his preface to Das Kapital. Segui il tuo corso e l'asia dirigenti. It is to Marx's everlasting credit that he set the intellectual standard of socialism on the most vigorous intellectual basis he could find. He knew better than to be satisfied with loose thinking and fairly good intentions. He knew that the vast change he contemplated needed every ounce of intellectual power that the world possessed. A fine boast it was that socialism was equipped with all the culture of the age. I wonder what he would have thought of an enthusiastic socialist candidate for governor of New York who could write that, quote, Until men are free, the world has no need of any more literary efforts, of any more paintings, of any more poems. It is better to have said one word for the emancipation of the race than to have written the greatest novel of the times. The world doesn't need any more literature. Unquote. I will not venture a guess as to what Marx would have said, but I know what we must say. Without a literature the people is dumb. Without novels and poems, plays and criticism, without books of philosophy, there is neither the intelligence to plan, the imagination to conceive, nor the understanding of a common purpose. Without culture you can knock down governments, overturn property relations, you can create excitement, but you cannot create a genuine revolution in the lives of men. The reply of the working men in 1847 to Cabe's proposal that they found Acaria, a new terrestrial paradise, in Texas, if you please, contains this interesting objection, quote, Because although those comrades who tend to emigrate with Cabe may be eager communists, yet they still possess too many of the faults and prejudices of present-day society by reason of their past education to be able to get rid of them at once by joining Icaria. Unquote. That simple statement might be taken to heart by all the reformers and socialists who insist that the people are all right, that only institutions are wrong. The politics of Reconstruction require a nation vastly better educated, a nation freed from its slovenly ways of thinking, stimulated by wider interests, and jacked up constantly by the sharpest kind of criticism. 
It is puerile to say that institutions must be changed from top to bottom, and then assume that their victims are prepared to make the change. No amount of charters, direct primaries, or short ballots make a democracy out of an illiterate people. Those portions of America where there are voting booths but no schools cannot possibly be described as democracies. Nor can the person who reads one corrupt newspaper and then goes out to vote make any claim to having registered his will. He may have a will, but he has not used it. For politics whose only ideal is the routine, it is just as well that men shouldn't know what they want or how to express it. Education has always been a considerable nuisance to the conservative intellect. In the southern states, culture among the Negroes is openly deplored, and I do not blame any patriarch for dreading the education of women. It is out of culture that the substance of real revolutions is made. If by some magic force you could grant women the vote and then keep them from schools and colleges, newspapers and lectures, the suffrage would be no more effective than a blue law against kissing your wife on Sunday. It is democratic machinery with an educated citizenship behind it that embodies all the fears of the conservative and the hopes of the radical. Culture is the name for what people are interested in, their thoughts, their models, the books they read and the speeches they hear, their table talk, gossip, controversies, historical sense and scientific training, the values they appreciate, the quality of life they admire. All communities have a culture. It is the climate of their civilization. Without a favorable culture, political schemes are a mere imposition. They will not work without a people to work them. The real preparation for a creative statesmanship lies deeper than parties and legislatures. It is the work of publicists and educators scientists, preachers, and artists. Through all the agents that make and popularize thought must come a bent of mind interested in invention and freed from the authority of ideas. The democratic culture must, with critical persistence, make man the measure of all things. I have tried again and again to point out the iconoclasm that is constantly necessary to avoid the distraction that comes of idolizing our own methods of thought. Without an unrelaxing effort to center the mind upon human uses, human purposes, and human results, it drops into idolatry and becomes hostile to creation. The democratic experiment is the only one that requires this willful humanistic culture. An absolutism like Russia's is served better when the people accept their ideas as authoritative and piously sacrifice humanity to a non-human purpose. An aristocracy flourishes where the people find a vicarious enjoyment in admiring the successes of the ruling class. That prevents men from developing their own interests and looking for their own successes. No doubt Napoleon was well content with the philosophy of those guardsmen who drank his health before he executed them. But those excellent soldiers would make dismal citizens. 
a view of life in which man obediently allows himself to be made grist for somebody else's mill, is the poorest kind of preparation for the work of self-government. You cannot long deny external authorities in government and hold to them for the rest of life, and it is no accident that the nineteenth century questioned a great deal more than the sovereignty of kings. The revolt went deeper, and democracy in politics was only an aspect of it. The age might be compared to those years of a boy's life when he becomes an atheist and quarrels with his family. The nineteenth century was a bad time not only for kings, but for priests, the classics, parental autocrats, indissoluble marriage, Shakespeare, the Aristotelian politics, and the validity of logic. If disobedience is man's original virtue, as Oscar Wilde suggested, it was an extraordinarily virtuous century. Not a little of the revolt was an exuberant rebellion for its own sake. There were also counter-revolutions, deliberate returns to orthodoxy, as in the case of Chesterton. The transvaluation of values was performed by many hands into all sorts of combinations. There have been other periods of revolution. Heresy is just a few hours younger than orthodoxy. Disobedience is certainly not the discovery of the nineteenth century. But the quality of it is. I believe Chesterton has hold of an essential truth when he says that this is the first time men have boasted of their heresy. The older rebels claim to be more orthodox than the church, to have gone back to the true authorities. The radicals of recent times proclaim that there is no orthodoxy, no doctrine that men must accept without question. Without doubt, they deceive themselves mightily. They have their invisible popes, called art, nature, science, with regalia and ritual and a catechism. But they don't mean to have them. They mean to be self-governing in their spiritual lives. And this intention is the half-perceived current which runs through our age and galvanizes so many queer revolts. It would be interesting to trace out the forms it has taken, the abortive cults it has tried and abandoned. In another connection I pointed to autonomy as the hope of syndicalism. It would not be difficult to find a similar assertion in the feminist agitation. From Mrs. Gilman's profound objections against a man-made world to the lady who would like to vote about her taxes, there is a feeling that woman must be something more than a passive creature. Walter Pater might be quoted in his conclusion to the effect that, quote, the theory or idea or system which requires of us the sacrifice of any part of experience, in consideration of some interest into which we cannot enter, or some abstract theory we have not identified with ourselves, or what is only conventional, has no real claim upon us." Unquote. The desire for self-direction has made a thousand philosophies as contradictory as the temperaments of the thinkers. A storehouse of illustration is at hand. Nietzsche advising the creative man to bite off the head of the serpent which is choking him, and become a transfigured being, a light-surrounded being that laughed, 
One might point to Stirner's absolute individualism, or turn to Whitman's wholehearted acceptance of every man with his catalogue of defects and virtues. Some of these men have cursed each other roundly. Georges Sorel, for example, who urges working men to accept none of the bourgeois morality, and becomes most eloquent when he attacks other revolutionists. I do not wish to suggest too much unanimity in the hundreds of artists and thinkers that are making the thought of our times. There is a kind of professional reconciler of opposites who likes to lump all the prominent rebels together and refer to them affectionately as us radicals. Yet that there is a common impulse in modern thought which strives towards autonomy is true and worth remarking. In some men it is half-conscious, in others a minor influence, but almost no one of weight escapes the contagion of it entirely. It is a new culture that is being prepared. Without it there would today be no demand for a creative statesmanship which turns its back upon the routine and the taboo, kings and idols, and non-human purposes. It does more. It is making the atmosphere in which a humanly-centered politics can flourish. The fact that this culture is multiform, and often contradictory, is a sign that more and more of the interests of life are finding expression. We should rejoice at that, for profusion means fertility. Where a dead uniformity ceases, invention and ingenuity flourish. Perhaps the insistence on the need of a culture in statecraft will seem to many people an old-fashioned delusion. Among the more rigid socialists and reformers it is not customary to spend much time discussing mental habits. That, they think, was made unnecessary by the discovery of an economic basis of civilization. The destinies of society are felt to be too solidly set in industrial conditions to allow any cultural direction. Where there is no choice, of what importance is opinion? All propaganda is, of course, a practical tribute to the value of culture. However inevitable the process may seem, all socialists agree that its inevitability should be fully realized. They teach at one time that men act from class interests, but they devote an enormous amount of energy to making men conscious of their class. It evidently matters to that supposedly inevitable progress whether men are aware of it. In short, the most hardened socialist admits choice and deliberation, culture and ideals into his working faith. He may talk as if there were an iron determinism, but his practice is better than his preachment. Yet there are necessities in social life. To all the purposes of politics it is settled, for instance, that the trust will never be unscrambled into small competing businesses. We say in our argument that a return to the days of the stagecoach is impossible, or that you cannot turn back the hands of the clock. Now man might return to the stagecoach if that seemed to him the supreme goal of all his effort, just as anyone can follow Chesterton's advice to turn back the hands of the clock if he pleases. But nobody can recover his yesterdays 
no matter how much he abuses the clock. And no man can expunge the memory of railroads, though all the stations and engines were dismantled. Quote, From this survival of the past, says Bergson, it follows that consciousness cannot go through the same state twice. Unquote. This is the real necessity that makes any return to the imagined glories of other days an idle dream. Graham Wallace remarks that those who have eaten of the tree of knowledge cannot forget. Quote, Mr. Chesterton cries out like the cyclops in the play against those who complicate the life of man and tells us to eat caviar on impulse instead of grape-nuts on principle. But since we cannot unlearn our knowledge, Mr. Chesterton is only telling us to eat caviar on principle. Unquote. The binding fact we must face in all our calculations, and so in politics too, is that you cannot recover what is past. That is why educated people are not to be pressed into the customs of their ignorance, why women who have reached out for more than Kirke, Kinder und Kuke can never again be entirely domestic and private in their lives. Once people have questioned an authority, their faith has lost its naivete. Once men have tasted inventions like the trust, they have learned something which cannot be annihilated. I know of one reformer who devotes a good deal of his time to intimate talks with powerful conservatives. He explains them to themselves. Never after do they exercise their power with the same unquestioning ruthlessness. Life is an irreversible process, and for that reason its future can never be a repetition of the past. This insight we owe to Bergson. The application of it to politics is not difficult, because politics is one of the interests of life. We can learn from him in what sense we are bound. Quote, the finished portrait is explained by the features of the model, by the nature of the artist, by colors spread out on the palette. But even with the knowledge of what explains it, no one, not even the artist, could have foreseen exactly what the portrait would be, for to predict it would have been to produce it before it was produced. Unquote. The future is explained by the economic and social institutions which were present at its birth. The trust and the labor union, all the movements and institutions will condition it. Just as the talent of the painter is formed or deformed, in any case is modified, under the very influence of the work he produces, so each of our states, at the moment of its issue, modifies our personality, being indeed the new form we are just assuming. It is then right to say that what we do depends on what we are, but it is necessary to add also that we are, to a certain extent, what we do and that we are creating ourselves continually. What I have called culture enters into political life as a very powerful condition. It is a way of creating ourselves. Make a blind struggle luminous, drag an unconscious impulse into the open day, see that men are aware of their necessities, 
and the future is in a measure controlled. The culture of today is for the future an historical condition. That is its political importance. The mental habits we are forming, our philosophies and magazines, theaters, debates, schools, pulpits, and newspapers, become part of an active past which, as Bergson says, quote, follows us at every instant, all that we have felt, thought, and willed from our earliest infancy is there, leaning over the present which is about to join it, pressing against the portals of consciousness that would fain leave it outside. Unquote. Socialists claim that because the McNamara brothers had no class consciousness, because they were without a philosophy of society and an understanding of the labor movement, their sense of wrong was bound to seek out dynamite. That is a profound truth backed by abundant evidence. If you turn, for example, to Spargo's Life of Karl Marx, you see that all through his career Marx struggled with the mere insurrectionists. It was the men without the Marxian vision of growth and discipline who were forever trying to lead little marauding bands against the governments of Europe. The fact is worth pondering. The Marxian socialists, openly declaring that all authority is a temporary manifestation of social conditions, have waged what we must call a war of culture against the powers of the world. They have tried to arouse in working men the consciousness of an historical mission. The patience of that labor is one of the wonders of the age but the McNamaras had a culture that could help them not at all. They were Catholics, Democrats, and old-fashioned trade unionists. Religion told them that authority was absolute and eternal. Politics that Jefferson had said about all there was to say. Economics insisted that the struggle between labor and capital was an everlasting seesaw. But life told them that society was brutal. An episode like the shirtwaist factory fire drove them to blasphemy and dynamite. Those bombs at Los Angeles, assassination and terrorism, are compounded of courage, indignation, and ignorance. Civilization has much to fear from the blind class antagonisms it fosters, but the preaching of class consciousness, far from being a fomenter of violence, must be recognized as the civilizing influence of culture upon economic interests. Thoughts and feelings count. We live in a revolutionary period, and nothing is so important as to be aware of it. The measure of our self-consciousness will more or less determine whether we are to be the victims or the masters of change. Without philosophy we stumble along, the old routines and the old taboos are breaking up anyway. Social forces are emerging which seek autonomy and struggle against slavery to non-human purposes. We seem to be moving towards some such statecraft as I have tried to suggest. But without knowledge of it, that progress will be checkered and perhaps futile. The dynamics for a splendid human civilization are all about us. They need to be used. 
For that, there must be a culture practiced in seeking the inwardness of impulses, competent to ward off the idols of its own thought, hospitable to novelty, and sufficiently inventive to harness power. Why this age should have come to be what it is, why at this particular time the whole drift of thought should be from authority to autonomy, would be an interesting speculation. It is one of the ultimate questions of politics. It is like asking why Athens in the 5th century B.C. was singled out as the luminous point of the Western world. We do not know enough to cut under such mysteries. We can only begin to guess why there was a renaissance, why in certain centuries man seems extraordinarily creative. Perhaps the modern period, with its flexibility, sense of change, and desire for self-direction, is a liberation due to the great surplus of wealth. Perhaps the ease of travel, the popularizing of knowledge, the breakdown of frontiers, have given us a new interest in human life by showing how temporary are all its instruments. Certainly placid or morose acceptance is undermined. If men remain slaves either to ideas or to other men, it will be because they do not know they are slaves. Their intention is to be free. Their desire is for a full and expressive life, and they do not relish a lopsided and lamed humanity. For the age is rich with varied and generous passions. This is the end of A Preface to Politics by Walter Lippmann. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This book was recorded for you by David Martin, 1986-1987.